Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey. She's Juliana Osborne. This is Inside Exec. Today we're joined by Mark Hirschberg. And Mark has quite an extensive intro, so I'm going to go straight into that before we let him say a word. <laughs> Mark is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You, and creator of the Brain Bump app. And I have had trouble reading that and saying it since I first saw it. So we'll get him to talk about it and I won't have to say it again. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s in academia with over a dozen patents to his name. He helped start the undergraduate practice opportunities program dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator where he teaches annually. At MIT he received a Bachelor of Science in Physics, a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, a Master's in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science focusing on cryptography. At Harvard Business School Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, currently serving on the board of Plant a Million Corals. Now, just to round that off, in case you think he's far too academic for you to be able to glean anything from, the important part of the conversation is that he was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country. Hey. Now lives in New York City, where he is known for his social gatherings, including his annual Halloween party, and we will be expecting invitations as well as, and this is most important, his diverse cufflink collection, of which we've seen just a glimpse before we yes. started talking today. So welcome, Mark. That's just a wonderful bio to be able to live with. Thank you for having me on the show. It's my pleasure to be here today. Mark very generously agreed to talk with us about some case studies. So we've got two case studies that we gave him just the topic of before we started talking. We've asked Mark to think about being promoted to a leadership position when you don't want it. Now, in previous podcasts, we have given you our views on what you should do and how you should think about that in terms of yourself as well as the organisation. But we're keen to hear you heard Mark's very vast experience. So let's hear what Mark's got to say about being promoted to a leadership position when you don't want it. Well, let's start by recognising the moment you have this conversation, you've been promoted to a position you don't want you're already a little late. <laughs> I was also a competitive chess player growing up. And one of the things you learn to do when playing chess is to think not just one move ahead, but many moves ahead. Mm. You want to plan ahead, even knowing that you can only plan your moves. You can't tell what your opponent is going to do. And of course, you've got this branching tree structure. And you have to figure out what can happen under a number of scenarios. We need to think about our careers the same way. Don't just focus on, am I getting this bonus or this promotion or what's happening tomorrow? Instead, we need to think of our careers long-term and we need to be having conversations, certainly with ourselves, but ideally with our manager, with HR, with others about where our career is going so that they don't promote you to something you didn't want because you've been having conversations for months or years about where you're headed and both you and the company can align. But that's the nice thing to do. We may find ourselves in a position where that didn't happen. And so when you get into this position, so let me just understand, is it you're stuck in that position already or you've been offered and you're trying to decide how to respond? 
I think we'll look at it, they've moved you into this position because that's generally what we find in our, our listeners who will say, well, I've got this problem, I don't know what to do with it, is that they've performed, they've done all the things that they think they should be doing and they think that this is the path that they want to follow and they've been promoted into a position which in one sense is not what they expected and so therefore they don't want it or they've been moved into a role because the organisation has recognised that they've got skills even though they don't like using those skills and if I can use myself as an example I got promoted into being a training manager and I did not enjoy being in front of a classroom I, I, I love public speaking bigger the crowd the better but not a small group not a classroom don't give me that at all but because I was so good at, at one, what they saw as, as presenting yourself, they promoted me into this role that I didn't want. When you find you're in this position, what you can do is first start those conversations, the ones we said would have been nice years ago, because mm-hmm. you're thinking ahead for your next role. If yep. you don't like the job you're in now, you need to change it. Now, there's multiple ways you can change it. Obviously, in an extreme case, you can walk out the door and go somewhere else. You can look for your next role at the company and say, how do I set myself up for success to get into this new role that I will like more? Mm -hmm. And we can talk about how to make sure you don't have the same problem of you think it's good, but it's not once you get there. Mm -hmm. But then if you're going to be in this role for a while, the title may stay the same, but the actual role can vary a lot depending on the organization. Now, if you're in a small company, and they tend to have a rigid hierarchy, you might have less flexibility than if it's a larger company where it's more fluid or where roles are more dynamic. But you can look at the role in any given role, especially if you are in a leadership position, if you have a team, there's more work than you can do by yourself. That's why you have a team. And can you look and find other people on the team and rejigger all the roles, including yours, So you can focus more on what you're interested in and others can focus on what they're interested in or good at. Remember, there's that old saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Mm -hmm. Something that you might really dislike may be very appealing to someone, especially someone more junior who may be looking forward to that opportunity. So here's just a simple example off the top of my head. Suppose one of your jobs is budgeting. You're now in charge of doing a budget and Uh, Who likes to sit there with spreadsheets and try to make everything balanced? But there are people who either find that enjoyable or who say, I want your job one day, not in a, I'm coming for you, but I I want to be there and I need to build up these skills. And you can rely on this person and say, can you help me with the budget? Now, maybe I can't show you people's salaries, but I can show you the rest of it. I can show you our expenses. And can you help me do this budget? And this person says, wow, this is great. My boss is giving me work that's helping to grow me as a person that's setting me up for success. Meanwhile, you're saying, great, one less thing I have to deal with I dislike. So it can be a win-win. It's just about creating the role you want. It's focusing on the problem is not the problem. It's how you're looking at the problem. It's how you can frame it for success. Mark, what do you think about you think you don't like that role, but you really haven't done it before. And what about asking yourself the question is, they selected me for this role, obviously, I want to see, maybe look through their eyes. Is They must have thought that would be a good move from a company perspective and outcomes. So what's your thoughts about thinking that way? 
First, we should never just think, we should always ask, Mm -hmm. why do you think this is a good role for me? What is it you see in me? What am I doing right? Mm -hmm. What things should I know about? It's okay to have these conversations. And when we guess, when we assume, Mm -hmm. sometimes we're right, but sometimes we're off. Importantly, when looking at a role, a role you think you might be interested in now or in the future, one of the mistakes we make is we look at from the outside. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, I think of people I know, couples I know, where I've looked at their marriages and thought, oh, you have this great storybook marriage. Mm -hmm. And then I find out later, wow, they're getting divorced. And it turns out it has been terrible for years. But of Mm -hmm. course, I'm not there in their kitchen late at night when they're screaming at each other. I see them happy and smiling. We Mm -hmm. see a limited view of their lives. And we often have the same things with other roles in the company. We have a limited interaction with them and a limited view of what we think they do. And Mm -hmm. honestly, if you look at most job titles, they tell you very little about the Mm -hmm. job. They Mm -hmm. list about 17 different responsibilities, but those responsibilities, how they're executed are very different. I'll give you a very simple example. I work oftentimes as a CTO, a chief technology officer. Mm -hmm. I've been at companies where the CTO might be very Mm hands-on, whether small ones, the CTO actually codes. At others, he's going to be very in the code and very technical. Mm -hmm. I've been at companies as a consultant where the CTO hasn't really touched a computer in about 20 years and is doing more strategy and budgeting and organization. In some, the CTO is external facing Mm -hmm. as they're trying to build alignment with partners or bring Mm -hmm. bring up the brand and others is more internal. And these are all equal CTOs and they will have in their job descriptions, similar lists, but the weighting is very different. How much time they spend on one task or another. And so it's important when we look at a role, whether it's a new job at another company or internal in our own company, we say, what is this actually like? A question I love is walk me through a typical week. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the first thing you get when you ask that is, well, no week is typical. Yeah. Yes, I get that. <laughs> but if you came up with one, if you averaged over a year, what's a typical week? How much time do you spend on this task versus that task? And find out, are you spending 20 hours a week in meetings? Mm-hmm. That might sound good or bad. How many emails do you get a day? How much time do you spend building up your team? Depending on the weighting, this may be more or less appealing. And you can know that ahead of time to know if it's the right fit. Mm-hmm. What occurs to me as you're talking there is that if you ask that question, you said, you know, walk me through a typical week and they launch straight into, well, on Mondays we do this, Tuesdays we do that. That also is telling in terms of their perception of the role. Exactly. It's what people leave out. I'll usually ask, walk me through percentage-wise how much time you spend Mm -hmm. on certain tasks. Don't even worry if it adds up to 100. I just want to get the relative weightings. Mm -hmm. Since it's more this than that, and that's helpful. Ask, what do you like most about the job? Again, whether it's internal promotion or external, what do you like about this job? What makes this job stressful? You might get a lot of emails and you hear, by the way, the manager for this job, your future manager, she wants all your emails to be responded to within an hour. Thinking, oh boy, that's going to be a pain or that's okay. I love spending my day responding to emails. So again, just find out those details because the devil is in the details. 
Mm-hmm. I've used that as a question in recruitment. You know, I've said to people, you so you've seen the position description. What is it you think you like least about this job? Because that gives me a sense too of what they would prefer to do in the role. And, and then you're in the, that position where you can mix and match a little bit. You've got the opportunity to take on someone who mightn't tick all the boxes, but is going to give you and give the team something more to work with than if you've got someone who ticked all the boxes at the average level. And you can use the same question as an interviewer. Mm. I will often ask a candidate, okay, you're here for a director of marketing role. Describe your ideal role to me. How would you like to spend your time? If this person says 70% of the time I want to be out doing conference events, I think, well, that's really 20% of the time for this job. We'll have an honest conversation about it and we'll figure out if this is a match or not. Save so much time and so much anxiety afterwards because you've got this round peg that you're trying to fit into the square hole and neither is going to budge or fit. Our second case study that we sent you was about networking and about networking in a hostile or toxic company environment about where the work environment is negative rather than a a takeover situation. The organisation is there, but it's not a nurturing or safe environment in terms of of what you do. So how do you comfortably network? And, And I guess it comes back to what we see as networking because that's been an ongoing discussion we've had. It's not a word I enjoy because my associations with it are all about having to go to meetings and talk talk yourself up to people who might or might not be interested but we've had guests who've, who've changed my thinking a little bit good, good. but so we can talk about networking networking first of all and then about how you do it when you feel that the environment is not particularly safe in, in a career sense well let's talk about networking in general as you yep. suggest and then we'll talk about in this particular organization we're going to talk yep. specifically it sounds like about internal networking Now, networking in general, it's relationship building. That's really all it is. Unfortunately, many people have the wrong view. When we think of that ideal networker, we first think, or maybe stereotype more than ideal, we think of, we walk into some conference and a salesperson says, I'll be right back. And he goes off and an hour later, comes back with 20 business cards and says, look at all these people I Mm. met. If you see a TV show or movie showing networking. They show a montage of handshakes, smiles, and business cards exchanged. That's not networking. Suppose right now I pulled out a dating app like Tinder. I started swiping. And all of a sudden, I swipe right on some girl, and she swipes right on me. Imagine if I said, oh, look, she's my new girlfriend. You're going to laugh at me and say, Mark, she's not your girlfriend. You just swiped right. That's it. Now you have to build a relationship. We call that dating. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of actual networking. Just because we add each other on LinkedIn or exchange business cards, like matching with that girl or getting her phone number in a bar, we don't have a relationship yet. Now we have to build the relationship. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever made a friend, you know how to build a relationship. But unfortunately, we think it's instant. We also think, when do we network? Well, we network when we need a job. So imagine if I meet you at a social event, say, hey, you ladies seem lovely. It's been great chatting with you. So listen, this weekend, I got to pack up my apartment and move. Why don't you come on over? Don't worry, I'm buying pizza. You can help me pack up my whole apartment. (laughs) Then we have a great time together. Aren't we good friends now? (laughs) You meet new people and say, hi, strangers. Here's what I need from you. 
And yet that's the wrong mentality that so many people have with networking. So mm-hmm. you, you want to go in and build relationships that later you can rely on, just like I can call my friends who I've known for 20 years and say, now I need your help packing my apartment this weekend. So that's my big philosophy on networking. Now, in this particular case, we're talking about internal networking, which first is very important. So many people, because again, they think networking is I need a job and that means somewhere else I'm going to network. But building our internal networks is very important Mm -hmm. and arguably even more so in a toxic environment. Internal networks matter because they can get us information they can send us signals. I only have a certain visibility into the company. I physically sit in this area. I talk to these people. I get these reports and emails. I don't see things happening elsewhere, but through my network, I can learn about other things happening. I can get indications, good and bad, of things I should know about. I can also build up allies. I can build up people who can help support my positions when I want to promote some new ideas. I'll have others who can buy into it and support me, or I'll have other people who, when I'm not in the room, can advocate for me, for my team, for our ideas. And so we all want to build up these, even in the best of environments. People think about, oh, this is politicking and politicking is bad. First, politicking is not good or bad. Politics are just like politics in a governance in your country. Yes, there are some negatives, but we certainly don't want a country with no politics. It wouldn't run. And so relationships are how some things get done in companies. Sometimes it's more important. Sometimes it's less important. But when you're in a toxic environment, when you have people who are coming after you for whatever their reasons, isn't it better not to be alone? It's better to have other people first so you don't feel alone psychologically, you don't feel it's just me against the company, but Mm -hmm. also when these other people are saying bad things about you, your team, and your ideas, there will be other people out there who can speak up. Mm -hmm. And the voice on your side is now louder. It's not just you, it's other people, it's your allies. So especially in toxic environments, it's important that we build these networks, we build these relationships, so they're there for us through the challenges that we'll face. Yeah, I think the most important part of that is is remembering that it's their relationships and that they're not relationships of convenience either, that they have to be based on some sort of mutual exchange as mm. most good relationships are. Exactly. Just like our friendships, you know, I didn't pick you to be a friend just because I think you can do something for me today and then I forget yeah. about you. Mm. We have a true genuine friendship where we help each other. Mm. Now, your professional, your network relationships, they might not be people you hang out with on the weekend or invite over for the barbecue. And that's fine. But you do have that relationship that when one person makes a call, the other person will pick up the phone. Doesn't even mean you have to grant every request, but that you'll at least hear each other out and try to support each other when you can. I wonder if that's a line that's blurred, that we don't recognize that they can be two separate things, that we can have the work relationship and we can have the outside work relationship, that it doesn't have to be all-encompassing, that there's there's different priorities, different needs, different interactions that happen in those two environments, and that perhaps the overabundance of social media is forcing us to think that, that the relationship has to be the same regardless of the environment that it's in. And it's important to be clear on some of these boundaries, mm. just like we'll use an analogy like dating, 
if you start dating someone, imagine someone thinks, well, we should be texting every day and seeing each other three times a week. The other person thinks, you know, if we text a few times a week and we go out once a week, that's good for this phase of our relationship. But that's a mismatch if they don't talk about it. And there's going to be frustration on one or both sides. Likewise, if we form this professional relationship and your view is, oh, everyone on my network, they're good friends. And why don't you come over and meet the family? I'm thinking, hey, you're nice, but five o'clock, I got my own thing. Again, we'll have a mismatch if we don't set those expectations. On a similar note, some companies are companies where everyone they are good friends. I've met companies where we've got our annual ski trip and most of the company, they go away and they hang out with each other on the weekends. And if you're not a person who does that, just know you might be socially a little more isolated, even while at the company Mm. or vice versa. We want to make sure that's a fit. So we have matched expectations. It all comes back to my favorite word is communication throughout all of the podcasts. It's about communication. It's about talking. It's about hearing and it's about understanding. That's all I wanted to say. 100%. That's the first part of our discussion with Mark Hirschberg covering two case studies that we have previously discussed amongst ourselves. And now we've got a third perspective on them. Join us for part two. For now, I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne. We've been talking with Mark Hirschberg, and this is Inside Exec.